Metamore Studios proudly presents Metamore City, Season 2, a podcast series written and performed by Chris Lester. For show notes and author contact information, please visit metamorecity.com. Featuring the vocal talents of Michael Spence, Genevieve Seven, Nobilis Reed, Indiana Jim, Danae Winters, Deirdre Reed, Susan Murph, and TD0013. These stories may contain adult language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Whispers in the Wood, Part 4. This is fine workmanship. Very fine indeed. Rosanna hung back in the doorway to the workshop as Emilio conversed with his shadowy patron. The note of approval in Malcolm's voice made her relax just a little. The violin let out one long, clear note, startlingly loud. The image of a howling wolf passed briefly through her mind. Excellent work, Venturi. This is a worthy tribute to the Dark Mother. Thank you, sir, Amelia said. Her husband sounded relieved. I'll have the next one ready in about a month. Very good. A bag of coins jangled and came to rest on a table. I shall take no more of your time, maestro. Here is your payment. Much obliged, sir. A good night to you, sir. And to you. The door on the far side of the workshop opened and closed. Rosanna stuck her head into the room and saw Emilio slumped over the table. Sweat beaded out on his brow and he was breathing heavily. Rosanna went to him, embracing him from behind. That is not a man. No, he is not. But he is my patron. Eli, help us. Rosanna pressed her face up against his back. You are trembling, love. I'm just tired. You're always tired now. Rosanna tried to keep her tone gentle, but she couldn't hide the worry she felt. What is Melodia making you do in there? What I must, Emilio said at last. What the work requires. The work is eating you alive. Rosanna turned him around and put a hand to his cheek, where the skin had gone sallow and creased with newfound wrinkles. This is worse than when you worked for Campanini. It is worth the cost. These instruments are beyond anything I have ever created. Beyond anything I ever hoped to create. They will be my legacy, my gift to the world. Rosanna put a hand to his chest. What of your gift to me, Emilio? For months now, you have been too tired to even make love. He looked away as shame covered his features. I... I do not think it would do any good, Rosanna. In all our years together, you have never... He bit down hard on the words, stopping himself. I do not think I can give you children, he said instead. His voice was low and full of an old, deep pain. Rosanna felt that pain as well. In truth, she felt it more deeply than a man ever could. She rested her head on his shoulder and reached up under his tunic, placing her hand against his bare skin. I know. If it were meant to happen, it would have happened by now. 
but that was not what I meant. She stroked her fingers lovingly over his chest and paused, frowning. There was a change in the texture of her husband's skin, like thin stripes running down his chest. What is that? Emilio suddenly grew tense. Nothing, he said shortly. Just a scar. A scar? Emilio, my love, you never had a scar there before. What happened? Emilio stood, brushing her aside. An accident in the workshop. One of my tools slipped and cut me. What? When did this happen? Why didn't you tell me? It looked worse than it was. I didn't want you to worry. Small chance of that if you won't tell me when you are hurt. Rosanna's fear and anger made the words come out harsher than she had intended. A silence fell between them. I'm sorry, Emilio said at last. So am I. But, Emilio, please, this madness has to stop. He turned away from her again. It will stop. When I am done with this commission, it will be the end of it. I will take apprentices and teach them the trade, but these eighteen, these divinities, they will be my last. Rosanna lowered her head. It wasn't the answer she wanted, but she knew her husband too well to have expected anything else. All right. I'm going to bed, Amelia said after another long moment. Will you join me? She nodded. In a moment, love. Go on. After he had gone, she sat in the workshop for a long time, thinking. She looked up at the tools hanging from their pegs on the ceiling, and at the others resting on workbenches where Emilio had left them. But try as she might, she could not imagine how any of them could have created the long, thin scars on her husband's chest. Every woman had her breaking point. Rosanna reached hers on a moonless night six months later. Emilio had been reduced to a shadow of his former self. He had stopped showing interest in food, in wine, in his nephew's children, even in music, unless it came from those damnable violins he was crafting for Malcolm. He ate and slept in only the barest amounts necessary to keep himself alive and working. Whenever he entered the workshop, Melodia was already there waiting for him. She had told Rosanna that they must not be disturbed, and for months Rosanna had accepted this. She often complained to Melodia about the toll the work was taking on her husband. But when the elf woman spoke, her objections seemed to evaporate. No longer. Whatever witchery inhabited the woman's words, Rosanna would not give her the chance to use it. She opened a flask of holy water she had purchased from the local priests, dabbed it onto two small tufts of pure white wool, and stuck them in her ears. She took up her new crucifix, a heavy one made of cold wrought iron, and slipped the chain around her neck so the sign of the yew tree rested over her heart. Then she took her longest, sharpest kitchen knife, just in case, she told herself, and went to the workshop door. With a long, deep breath and a silent prayer for protection, she gave the door a hard shove and pushed her way inside. Nothing could have prepared her for what she saw. Her husband lay supine atop his largest workbench, surrounded by strange lines and symbols that had to be magical. He was naked, and his bare chest oozed blood from a dozen shallow, swiping cuts. 
and there was Melodia, mounted atop him in the throes of ecstasy, her long red hair unbound and writhing like a nest of serpents. Rosanna screamed, the sound tearing itself unbidden from her throat. Emilio showed no response, but the elf woman, no, the fairy, Rosanna realized, looked over her shoulder at Rosanna and laughed, a cold and mocking sound. Her eyes glowed with an inhuman green light, the pupils slitted like a cat's. As Rosanna watched in horror, the fairy extended a long, forked tongue and lapped up her husband's blood. Something broke inside her, and Rosanna rushed at the fairy, raising the knife, shrieking in incoherent fury. The fairy flicked a hand at her, a sharp, dismissive gesture, and a wave of force caught Rosanna and threw her across the room. She landed in the pile of scrap wood in the corner, stunned and aching. The knife stood in the wall above her, buried to the hilt. Did you think that genius came for free? The fairy asked, mocking her. It must be paid for with blood and life. He gave himself to me willingly, Rosanna. He is mine. The fairy's use of her name did not bewitch her this time, but the words did damage enough on their own. As she looked at Emilio, captive and powerless under the creature's spell, Rosanna knew that she had already lost. She fled back into the house and hid herself in the indoor washing room. An extravagance, to be sure, but one that Emilio had easily been able to afford after his time with Count Vellini. She sobbed uncontrollably, the grief pouring out of her broken heart. The fairy was right. Her husband was lost to her, now and forever. She would never be able to match the terrible alien beauty of the thing that had captured her husband's heart. Unless... Her eyes fell on the straight razor that her husband used to shave. Blood and life. Paid for with blood and life. Almost without knowing what she was doing, Rosanna removed her clothes... She took up the razor in her trembling hand and climbed into the bathtub. She plugged the drain, then unfolded the razor and stared at her reflection in the blade. By blood and life, her husband had bartered away his soul for genius. By blood and life, she would buy him back. The vision faded, and with it the song came to an end. As before, there was not a dry eye in the house. But this time, the people wept not for their own pain, not for the loss of a loved one, or for the suffering inflicted on them by an uncaring universe, but for the grief of one woman. Their hearts swelled with compassion for this lost and lonely soul, a woman who had lost her beloved to one who had claimed to be a friend, a woman who had, at the last, given all she had in a desperate, futile attempt to win him back. The maestro spoke. Rosanna gave her life to save her husband, but she failed. Emilio Venturi went mad upon his wife's death. Consumed with guilt, he sought to honor her memory through the creation of this instrument. The fairy who had captured him perverted that noble effort, and what should have been her homage became her prison. The pain you have heard in Threnody's music is her pain, 
amplified and perpetuated through the centuries. And while many have been healed by the power of this instrument, I will not be the channel for something that heals one person's pain by exploiting another's. The man bowed his head, and silence fell in the recital hall. No one in the audience dared to break it. At last, Abby spoke for the first time since the performance began. You have all seen Rosanna's story. Remember it. Tell it to your friends and to your children. Remember her sacrifice and how her pain has brought you healing. Remember and honor her. The people in the audience murmured agreement. Abby turned to the edge of the stage and gestured to the ushers waiting there. They began circulating through the crowd, passing out small cups of red wine. The last of these was brought to Abby, who held it aloft before the crowd. To Rosanna Venturi, she said as her eyes filled with tears. Let her name and her love be remembered always. As one, the crowd resounded. To Rosanna Venturi! They drank together, and without another word, the spotlights were extinguished. The people filed out of the hall, speaking quietly to one another of the story they had heard, a story that, Abby knew, would be fixed in their minds forever. When the last members of the audience had gone, a pale, luminous form took shape on the stage. The ghost of Rosanna Venturi looked out over the empty seats with an expression of wonder on her tear-lined face. They listened, she said, as if in amazement. They heard. And they will remember, Abby promised. The suggestion I put behind it will make sure of that. Word about you will spread. In five years, we'll never hear about the genius of Emilio Venturi without hearing about the sacrifice of Rosanna along with it. Rosanna nodded once. It is just... He was a great man, and I have never wished to see his achievements taken from him. I only wanted... To be known? To be loved as you loved? She gave the other woman a sad smile. We all want that. The ghost returned the smile. I suppose so. Abby hesitated, then asked... Do you think you can forgive him now? Rosanna closed her eyes and nodded. Yes. He did not mean to imprison me. I understand that now. What he did, he did for love. I only wish that I could tell him I forgive him. You may be able to. He could be waiting for you on the other side. I hope so. Rosanna looked up at the ceiling. I can feel the place beyond calling me. She looked over at Threnody, which Wells held on his lap beside her. The glowing red chain still ran from her ankle to the violin. She reached down and took the chain in her hands. A brief tug, and the chain came loose and vanished into smoke. A rush of wind ran through the recital hall, pungent with the scent of cinnamon. The Leonanchi appeared on the stage behind them her lovely face dark with fury. I am most displeased, children. Her voice was like ice, and Abby's heart felt like it froze in her chest at the sound of it. Rosanna was not impressed. She got squarely in the Fay woman's face, 
putting her hands on her hips. As am I, Melodia. And with far more cause, I think. And these people are under my protection. The fairy rolled her eyes. Out of my way, you will-o'-wisp. I must have words with my protege and his troublesome little friend. She stepped forward and brushed her hand at Rosanna, as if she could blow her away like a puff of fog. Rosanna caught her wrist and stopped her dead in her tracks. She was no more solid than she had been a moment before, but the spirit's grip held the fairy like iron, and like iron, it burned her. The Leonanchi recoiled from Rosanna, cradling her injured arm. What is this? What it is, said Janus, emerging from behind the curtains, is your debt. He strode forward confidently, Alemasil still in its sheath. They wouldn't need the sword this time, something they had realized as soon as Rosanna had told them her story. The Leonanchi looked incredulous. Your debt to me. Rosanna's voice was just as cold as the fairies had been a moment before. I gave you my blood, my life, and 456 years of my pain. You accepted these gifts. You used them to create your art, to draw new servants to yourself, to spread their fame and the glory of their achievements. You know the laws that govern the noble Thay. Any she who accepts a gift is bound by his debt until it is repaid. Janus nodded toward Rosanna. Now that she's free of your little soul trap, Rosanna called in her marker. As the appointed mediator for this district, I recognize the claim. The fact that she's dead doesn't make a bit of difference. The fairy glared at all of them, but there was no longer any terror in the sight of it. With her debt unsatisfied and all of them under Rosanna's protection, she was powerless to touch them. What do you want, mortal spirit? I place a curse upon you. You shall not raise a hand against man or woman, child or beast. You shall bind no spirit against its will. You shall only feed on a mortal's life and blood if he give them willingly. Where before you have spread grief and sorrow, I now charge you to spread joy and delight. Let your talents be used to uplift and enhearten the race of men, not to remind them of their suffering. This cannot be. Pain is essential to art. It is only the suffering of mortals that gives their work weight and substance. Rosanna smiled grimly. Then you must learn to broaden your horizons, Melodia. Think of it as a challenge, a test of your skills as a muse. The fairy ground her teeth together. How long must I labor under these ridiculous strictures? I give you 456 years of pain. I demand from you 456 years of joy. Do this... And keep all of the conditions of my dash, and your debt shall be satisfied. Do I have your word? The Fey Woman shot an accusing look over at Janus. You find these terms reasonable, Mediator? He shrugged nonchalantly. They seem fair to me. Of course, if you find them too burdensome, I could impose an alternate punishment. Say, banishment from the mortal plane for the next 5,000 years? 
The fairy actually winced at that. Very well. She turned back to the ghost. You have my word, O wife of Emilio Venturi. The word is given, Janus said formally. The geish is set. This parley is closed. And so is my business here. Rosanna rose up into the air, spinning around to look at each of them in turn. Farewell, my friends. I go now to the realms beyond, and pray that I find my Emilio waiting for me. She beckoned to the violin, and a host of fainter ghosts poured out of it, 456 years worth of captured spirits. I will lead these others with me, that they might find the rest they deserve. Abby, Wells, and Janus all bowed to her. Farewell, Rosanna. May Eli make the path straight for you to paradise. Rosanna beamed at her. And for you, my friend, peace be with you. A brilliant light appeared above them, as if someone had slid open a door to another world. Rosanna and the other spirits passed through it in the blink of an eye, and then it snapped shut again. Good riddance, the Leonanshi muttered. She turned to Wells and extended a hand. Well, come along, Isaac. We have a heavy geish to repay, and I would as soon begin it quickly. Wells lowered his head and sighed. I am sorry, my lady, but I can't go with you. The fairy snorted. Nonsense. I agree it will be more difficult to make a name for you under that woman's conditions, but I have no doubt my talents will be sufficient. No, Threnody. She glared at him. That is not my name. Of course it isn't. Wells sat down heavily on his stool, looking like a worn-out husk of a man. But it's the name you earned, isn't it? Threnody, the funeral dirge, the song of death. Mortal suffering is the only thing you know how to find beauty in. Everything else is meaningless to you. He shook his head. And now you've been charged to give the world 400 years of joy and delight? I truly hope you can do it. Perhaps by the end you'll be able to see beauty in more than just our pain. But I cannot help you, Threnody. I cannot give the world joy and delight. There is none in me to give. Isaac. For the first time, the Fay woman looked truly sad. She came over and knelt before him. She placed a gentle hand on his knee then reached up with the other to caress his face. I could teach you, Joy. She spoke softly, almost tentatively, and now Abby realized that the bond of affection between Eleananchi and her host was more than just one way. Wells mattered to her, in a way that other humans never could. You're wrong about me, Isaac. I do know of beauty in other things. Come with me, and I will show you wonders to make your heart sing. Gently, Wells reached up and removed her hand from his cheek. Perhaps you could, for another. But to me, you will always be Threnody. I will look at you and see the monster who created an instrument that kills, who imprisoned an innocent woman for over four centuries for the sake of art. His face hardened. Gods curse me if I let myself learn joy from such a creature as that. Isaac, please. 
There were tears running down the Leonanchi's face now, and Abby didn't think they were for show. If I leave you, you'll die. I'm dying anyway. Your feeding doesn't stop it. It just slows it down. And I would rather live six weeks as a free man than six years with you for company. He brushed her off and walked away from her, up to the edge of the stage. Leave me now, Threnody. Before, I wouldn't look on you because I was in awe of your beauty. Now, I can't stomach the sight of you. (sighs) For several long seconds, the Fey Woman stared at him. Then she put her head between her knees and sobbed. (laughs) Abby had never heard anyone sound so wretched, so lost and alone. She found herself moving toward the woman to comfort her. Janus stopped her with a hand on her shoulder. Leave her to her grief. She's caused enough of it. She deserves to know how it feels. Deliberately, Abby reached up and lifted his hand off of her. If she is human enough to feel grief, then she is human enough to receive compassion. She is evil, Abby. She's a manipulative, murdering psychopath. She doesn't deserve your pity. Abby gave him a long, deliberate look. You can't teach kindness with a whip, Janus. Janus took a step back, his expression suddenly going blank. But whether it was from her words, or the way she said them, or simply from the look in her eyes, Abby didn't know. He stared at her searchingly for a long moment, then turned and walked away, following Wells out of the hall. Then Abby went to the Fay woman and wrapped her arms around her. She tensed against Abby's touch at first, but then melted into the embrace, the sobs racking her whole body. The others left and the hall went dark, but still Abby held her, long into the night. When Abby came to the boarding house the next morning, Wells had already packed his things and was giving the flat a final cleaning. Moving on? Moving, at any rate, Wells said ruefully. Moving on would imply progress toward some sort of destination. Apart from the one we're all moving toward. Abby flinched at that. She hadn't intended for the conversation to come around so quickly to his illness, but she supposed it was only natural for him to be thinking about it. Do you have anyone to stay with? Any friends or family? He sat down on the arm of the couch. Not really, no. I never married. First I was too young, then I was too busy, and then I was too old. He shook his head. And academia is a lonely world. A bunch of swelled heads, full of our own knowledge and achievements, all desperately trying to impress one another with how clever we are. True partnerships are damnably rare, and it's even rarer to find one that goes beyond the professional. The last time I had a friend close enough to come sleep on his couch for a few weeks, I was probably still in graduate school. I'm sorry to hear that. Abby came over and leaned against the couch beside him, putting her hand atop his. Why don't you come and stay with my family for a while? One and a half men, three and a half women, nine kids from four to zero. It's a little crazy sometimes, but never boring. Wells laughed. (laughs) Only in Metamore could I get invited to a house with one and a half men in it. 
Abby grinned. Is that a yes? The old professor looked down at his hands, visibly self-conscious. It all sounds lovely, my dear, but I hate to impose. You won't. Look, if it's the money you're worried about, don't even think about it. Between this job and the one I did for Janus last month, you're not going to be any kind of strain on our budget. She gave him a sad little smile. Also, we have connections at Eastside General Hospital. For when you need it. Wells closed his eyes and let out a long breath. I'm not accustomed to charity, Abby. Come on. You're not a fairy. You're not going to be bound by a geist just because somebody helps you. Besides, you've helped a lot of people over the last year. As far as I'm concerned, you've earned this. She squeezed his hand. Please? It would mean a lot to me. I love music, and I know I could learn so much from you. He smiled. Appealing to my vanity? You do understand academia. Abby winked at him. Whatever it takes. He was silent a moment longer, then looked at her. You're sure your family won't mind? Already okayed it before I made the offer. They're looking forward to meeting you. Lila, Dane, and Ava want Uncle Isaac to tell them bedtime stories. Oh, now that is dirty pool. Like I said, whatever it takes. He glared at her a moment, then shook his head, laughing. <laughs> Very well, then. I surrender. Take me away, fair maiden, to your strange land of delights and wonders. <laughs> <laughs> Abby laughed along with him, then helped him gather his possessions and carry them down to the bus stop. In one hand, she carried the Venturi violin. Just a violin now, Threnody no longer. She looked forward to hearing it again, now that its music would not be stained by the torment of innocent souls. She imagined the long winter nights to come, and Uncle Isaac playing a merry jig on his fiddle in the living room. It would be a good thing, a blessed thing, and she welcomed it. That was the one thing the Leonanchi had never realized, she thought. It was true. Suffering shared could bring people together. But so could joy. You've been listening to episode 45 of the Metamore City podcast, written and performed by Chris Lester, and edited by Scott Roche and Paulette Jackson. This episode featured the voice talents of TD0013 as Malcolm Ardvalos, Deidre Reed as Rosanna Venturi, Nobilis Reed as Emilio Venturi. Danae Winters as the Leonanchi, Michael Spence as Isaac Wells, Genevieve Seven as Abby Preston, and Indiana Jim as Janus Starson. Some music provided by David Beard at davidbeardmusic.com, used with permission. Other music and sound effects provided by Digital Juice at digitaljuice.com, SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, and the Free Sound Project at freesound.org. This audio adaptation of Whispers in the Wood was recorded and mixed at Metamore Studios in Berkeley, California. The story and recording are both copyright 2009 to 2010 by Chris Lester. This recording is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.5 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. 
We'll be back with more of the Metamorph City podcast right after these messages. Most of his life, Prince Aster has known he would one day face the fearsome dragon known as Mandrake. For the past ten years, this beast has burned crops, destroyed villages, killed countless worthy knights, and generally made the life in the kingdom of Caledon a royal pain. Now, the young prince has learned of a magic sword powerful enough to defeat the dragon. The history books say it can be found in the ruins of a once great empire hidden somewhere beyond the Misty Mountain. If Aster can find the lost empire, if he can brave the perilous journey through the mountains alone, if he can convince the ghost of the long-dead Empress that he is worthy, then the only thing standing between him and the Empress Sword might just be... a skirt. The Empress Sword is a fantasy novel by Paulette Jackson, coming this winter to Podiobooks.com and is a full cast audio experience at EmpressSword.com. This is not your father's epic fantasy story, but it could be your mother's. For Agent Cyrus, the world's first cyborg, the mission should have been simple. You deploy, secure the hotel, take him into custody, and extract. But when a routine snatch and grab goes wrong... Confirmed. Hostile jumped nine stories and is fleeing. Do not engage, Hostile. I repeat, do not engage. Cyrus finds herself at the center of a conspiracy that threatens the very foundation of her existence. The virus is progressive, and as it eats through the programming, your implants will lose their functionality. Your critical biological systems are dependent on the implants. If they die, either from the virus or your own immune system rejecting them, my biological systems won't be able to function. Now, with time running against her, Cyrus finds herself in the crosshairs of a conspiracy set to destroy her. (laughs) You think that because you have his name, you've cracked this case? You haven't scratched the surface. Even if you dig, you won't live long enough to see it through. You have no idea where this goes. On January 1, 2010, Cybrosis, the debut podcast novel by PC Herring, hacks into your RSS feed. Join some of the biggest names in podcasting, including Heather Welliver. You were right to fear us, you son of a bitch. Christiana Ellis. You and I work together to solve this. Together, we go as far as needed until all of your questions are answered and we have the absolute truth. Chris Lester. My terms are simple. I want 30 million for the plans, another 70 if you want the prototype. George Krob. We don't even know what she's up against. And if it is him, we And if it is him, everything we tried to do years ago is going to blow up in our face and bite us in the ass. And Chuck Tomasi, as Agent Cyrus races to unravel the conspiratorial shroud enveloped around her. I understand you don't trust me right now, and I don't blame you. You aren't the first, and if that guy has his way, you certainly won't be the last. Before it consumes her. Warning. Hydrogen field detected. Begin evacuation procedures. Cybrosis, 
the debut podcast novel by P.C. Herring, coming to you on 010110 from www.cyprosisnovel.com. Hi, this is Starla Hutchton of The Dreamer's Thread, and you're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. And we're back. I hope that you guys all enjoyed the first Metamore City story of Season 2. Whispers in the Wood was a lot of fun for me to write. I started writing it back in October of 2008, shortly after I arrived here in California, when I saw an article in the East Bay Express about a quote-unquote musical seance that was being done by a violinist and a pianist over in San Francisco. And it just struck me, what would it be like if a violin actually could contact or channel the spirits of the dead? That was the nucleus of this story, and I really like the way that it turned out. Hopefully you guys did too. You can send in your feedback to 206-202-8530. That's 206-202-8530. You can also email me at feedback at metamorecity.com or participate in the online discussion forums at thecurse.org or our Facebook group, Fans of Metamore City. As I said last time, we're still gathering responses for the first Metamore feedback show of Season 2, and I'm hoping to record that sometime later this month, so go ahead and get in your feedback now if you can. Also this month, I am the guest chef for Philippa Ballantyne's Erotica a la Carte over at eroticaalacarte.com. Come check out my new story, Tears Such as Angels Weep, a story of love and forgiveness in a post-apocalyptic setting of biblical proportions. Philippa Ballantyne, J. Daniel Sawyer, and I have decided to extend our contest for the Triple Threat Double Dip. This is the contest where you can take the bookmarks that we've put on our websites, print them out, and put them into books at various bookstores or libraries in your area. If you take pictures of yourself with the bookmarked books and send them in to us at our respective email addresses, then we'll enter you into the contests for me and for Pip and for Dan, and each of us has different prizes to give away. I'm going to be giving away either a copy of J.C. Hutchins' Seventh Son or Gail Carragher's Soulless, signed by the author, depending upon what the winner chooses. So if that sounds good to you, get your entries in as soon as possible. If you enter all three contests, then we will put you into a drawing for another contest, which is going to include some goodies from the San Francisco Bay Area and from New Zealand. And you can find the details about that contest at our websites. That's all for this week. Tune in next time on January 16th for the first part of Dreams of Change. This is a story by Nobilis Reed in which a young sorcerer at a school for magic is faced with an unusual disability. He turns into other people in his sleep. Oops. This is a fun story with great characters, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. No! Oh, yeah. Are you still recording? Yes. You bastard. <laughs> yeah.
She is evil, Abby. She is evil, Abby. <clears throat> I'm sorry, just, I don't feel like I'm expressing it right. Haha. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going now to the uh, confrontation with uh, what's her face? <laughs> the fairy. <laughs> All right. Ooh, evil woman. Ooh, do, evil, do, do, evil woman. Why do I want to sound like Obi Wan Kenobi? The Chancellor is evil. From my point of view, the Jedi are evil. Sorry. <clears throat> All right. How about some throws of ecstasy? I like that better. Ah, ah. How's that? She's a murdering. Wrong word. All right, how do you say the one word, geese? Geish. Geish. It's one of those words I've read but never heard pronounced before. Yeah. Very few people know how to pronounce mm-hmm. it correctly. I had to go to a Wiccan to get the correct pronunciation. I'm not entirely sure. Gush. 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 I know he said gush. G-U-Y-S-H. That doesn't really. Gush. 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 I'm going to go with gush. By pronouncing Geish correctly. Geish! Fuck! You know, I've always said it Geish, and I've been saying it wrong this whole time. Mm-hmm. Alright. Well, come along, Isaac. We have a heavy Geish to repay. Geish! Geish! Fuck! Geish! You know what? Give me a pen. She's a manipulative... <laughs> Clearly, I've never put a Geish on anybody. Clearly. I'm very Geish friendly, though. Pro Geish. <laughs> I'm so pro-geish. Anyway. Fighting for gay rights. Damn straight. She doesn't deserve your pity. Your pity. She doesn't deserve your pity. <laughs> pity. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> <laughs> your pity. I keep spitting it out. I must have friends. Good evening, everyone, to part four. Whispers in the wind, whispers in the wood, whispers in the weft, whispers in the warp drive. Who knows? <clears throat> Where were we? And let's really piss off Leanshi. Okay. Leanshi. 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 bitches. Let's right. do it. And bye-bye to the Leanshi who must be obeyed. Shut up. This is going to be great for the outtakes. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Metamore could I get invited to a house with one and a half men in it. Uh, I have only one request, Miss Preston. Could the one please not be Charlie Sheen? We have a heavy geish to repay, and I would soon... Uh, da, da, da. <sighs> Man, I hope that comes out right. No giggles, no giggles. Pissed off fairy, got it. All right. <sighs> Take me away, fair maiden, to your strange to land. Take me away, fair maiden, to your strange land, to your... Very well, then. Okay, that'll do it. Okay. High five.